If you have a Bible, uh, get to Luke 7. In these first 17 verses, we see Jesus interact with and engage with a broken world. People who are experiencing sickness and death and people who are walking through suffering and grief. And what we know as the people of the Word is that since Genesis 3 and the fall of man, since sin and selfishness enter the world, the perfection of God's design in Genesis 1 and 2 has been fractured. The world is not operating like the Lord has designed it to do, and the effects of sin have led to sickness and suffering and death, and it didn't start with COVID-19. It didn't start with a global pandemic. It started with global sin in Genesis 3 that has been passed down from generation to generation and throughout the storyline of Scripture and the history of our world, let alone our personal histories. We see how sin has led to a world that is prone to groaning and aching. We all get this. Here's something else you and I know, and it's even a greater truth to be reminded of, is that Jesus is making all things new. He is at work bringing healing and hope and restoration. He alone is our hope, right, church? He alone is our hope. We don't put our hope in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ. He is who we trust in. And here in Luke, Jesus has taken on flesh and entered the world. And in his earthly ministry, we see what he is about. We see that he is about rescue and redemption and restoration and reconciliation. We see the Lord's mission on display here to a broken world. And the church, the body of Christ, this is the mission that we've joined him in on. That mission didn't end with his death, resurrection, and ascension. It only began as the new church, the New Testament church began. So at Crosspoint, we call that we exist to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live 3D together. And in these two stories today that we're going to be looking at, we learn about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We learn that he is an authority. We learn that he has a heart for the nations. We learn that he cares, he heals, he grieves, he resurrects. To steal from the Bible, we learn that he is worthy. Church, Jesus is making all things new. He was doing it then, he's doing it now, and he is worthy of our collective and our complete trust in him. We'll read of two miraculous stories here. We'll look at them separately. We'll spend about 20 minutes there, and then considering it's Father's Day, I want to come back to the first story and give a challenge to you men, whether you're students here, whether you're grandfathers, whether you're dads or not yet, somewhere in there, we want to give a challenge and encouragement to men and spend about 10 minutes there. So Jesus has entered Capernaum following his sermon on the plain that we've looked at the past several Sundays, and Capernaum was a home base for ministry. This first story is also told in Matthew 8, and So I want to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll look at it. Luke 7, verse 1, when he had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant, who was highly valued by him, was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He, meaning the centurion, is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. 
Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say this to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. So who is a centurion? A centurion is a Roman soldier in charge of a hundred men. So in the chain of command, the one below him is in charge of ten. The one above him is in charge of a thousand. The centurion is in charge of a hundred soldiers. A centurion also earns a significant amount of money. Anywhere from 50 to 100 times what the lowest paid soldier would have earned at the time. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. We don't know his name. Luke is more focused on his character and the context of the story than he is on his name. And the centurion has a servant, a slave who is dying. And his attitude toward the servant is unusual. Why is it unusual? Well, under Roman law, a master had the right to kill his slave and was expected to do so if the slave became ill or injured to the point that they could not work. So, no disability, no work comp, no, hey, take some time off, get healed up. No, rather, let's go see the horse doctor. Brutal. Rome wasn't known for its compassion and mercy. And yet here, the centurion is showing compassion and mercy. And it's driving him to action. Action that is reaching out to someone who he has determined, the centurion has determined that he is able and willing to help. And he's determined that because of what he's heard about Jesus. Word is spreading. And so he sends Jewish elders to go see Jesus. Why send Jewish elders and not go himself? Well, we see that he did not think of himself worthy of a personal meeting with Jesus, nor worthy of Jesus coming to and entering his home. Let's also see that typically Jews were not fond of Roman soldiers. And yet these Jewish leaders are because of the character of the centurion. They come to Jesus and they start by saying, Jesus, he is worthy for you to go and heal his servant. And then they list the reasons he is worthy. It's like they're, they're reading his resume to Jesus. He loves the Jewish nation, Jesus. He's built the synagogue. He's been generous toward that work. You, he deserves you to do this, Jesus. He has earned his servant's healing through his work. Notice the difference between how the Jewish elders make their case to Jesus versus how the centurion does. Jewish elders say, he is worthy, verse 4. But then twice, verse 6 and verse 7, the centurion saying, I am not worthy. I did not consider myself worthy. The centurion felt undeserving of the grace and mercy of Jesus. He is saying, I'm not entitled to anything. I'm not deserving of you to even be in my own home. 
The centurion's plea for Jesus to heal his servant is strictly from a position that is in need, in need of grace and mercy. He's heard of Jesus. As far as we know, the two have never met. But what this man knows of Jesus Christ is that Jesus alone is able and willing to bring about healing. While the Jewish leaders, they they spin it around to make it about the centurion's resume, the centurion is making his request to Jesus based upon the character of Christ, not the unworthy character of himself. I think it's good for us to see that, good for us to recognize how in prayer, when we are going to Jesus, our high priest, when we are boldly coming before his throne, we are doing so from a position in need of grace and mercy. That's Hebrews 4. Through faith in Christ, we can boldly come before him in prayer, not because we've earned it, but, we, but we, because we've received salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. We don't come before him with, with our resume. We come before him in prayer with his resume. We come before him from a position of being in Christ that we've been given by him. This is why our first act of prayer is not asking for stuff. It's worshiping him. It's declaring back to him, Jesus, this is who you are. You are compassionate. You are just. You are merciful. You're the healer. You're the comforter. You're the protector. This is who you've always been. And so we pray. We depend upon you. There are two big character realities we see in the centurion, which I'll come back to when we challenge men at the end. But in the centurion, we see a growing faith and a growing humility. A growing faith. The the centurion understands authority. He is a man both in authority but also under authority. He is a man who tells his soldiers underneath him, go there, come here, do this, and they do it because they're under authority. And so he's saying, consider how much more can be accomplished by Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who he has heard about that Jesus of Nazareth is able to do supernatural works. He's recognizing that Jesus has a supernatural authority, which is far greater than his natural earthly authority in the Roman army. How much more might Jesus be able to do a growing faith and trust in Jesus? He also has a growing humility we see we see that in how he's responding to jesus he is not worthy of a personal visit don't trouble yourself jesus he's probably aware of jewish customs that would hinder a jewish person from entering a gentile home or seeing that as unclean maybe he's sensitive to that but probably more than that the centurion just has a high view of jesus an understanding of his greatness which at the same time is driving this growing humility in his heart a growing faith and a growing humility. And sometimes we think that to have those, it's actually incompatible to have a strong faith and a growing humility. That, that we incorrectly think that we can't have one without the other. That to have a strong faith means you end up being a self-righteous jerk. Or to have a growing humility means that you're wishy-washy about everything and you lack any sort of biblical backbone. You're like, oh, who am I to say? And that that's actually more humble to, to, to reject absolute truth. And maybe we think that they are incompatible because we've seen that in ourselves or we've seen that in others. That if we grow in our faith, 
that will actually be less gracious or charitable or kind or loving or humble, or that if we grow in humility, that we will stray from the truth. Consider a couple quotes from Charles Spurgeon. He said this in regards to this passage about the centurion. Two features of character, faith and humility, blend in him which do not often meet in such graceful harmony. He won the high opinion of others, and yet he held a low estimation of himself. And he goes on, your faith will not murder your humility. Your your humility will not stab at your faith, but the two will go hand in hand in heaven like a brave brother and a fair sister. The one bold as a lion, the other meek as a dove. The one rejoicing in Jesus, the other blushing at self. In verse 9 and 10 again, Jesus heard this and was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. Jesus was amazed at the faith of the centurion. His understanding of being in authority, but also under authority, his understanding of how that plays out in the spiritual realm and not just the earthly realm. And then I love verse 10. Oh, by the way, Jesus healed the servant. He's found in good health. The power uh, that the centurion trusted that Jesus would have, Jesus had. He displayed it with his very word. His very word. Never even stepped foot in the home. Next story, the scene shifts, verse 11. Afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. What a tragic situation that Jesus and his disciples come across. She's already lost her husband. Now she's lost her only begotten son. In that context, an extremely difficult future awaits this widow. She has no means in that context of providing for herself, let alone the grief that she's going to walk through. The crowd is grieving with her. There's no joy, no hope, no expectancy. And what do we see Jesus do? Verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he said, oh, that is messy. That's messy. I think I hear someone calling me right now. I think I'll pretend I didn't see that. Ain't nobody got time for that. I think I'm going to go down the next grocery aisle because I don't want to deal with that. You been there? Good, just me. Awesome. I guess pray for me then. Here's the real verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Jesus moves toward the grieving. He doesn't turn a blind eye. He doesn't pretend he doesn't see it. He doesn't pretend he's getting a phone call. He moves toward the grieving. That cloud is lovely. If you're online, you're missing out. Missing out on some humidity. The initiative here is taken by the Lord, not from the woman's request, but rather the character of Jesus is on display here. That's what compels him. When the when the Lord saw her, the root word there that Luke uses to describe the word Lord is this emphasis on Jesus' deity, the title that will remind us that he has authority over death. 
which he displays here, which he will display on Easter morning, the authority over death. Now, at first, he sounds abrupt. Don't weep. He's not saying, dry up those tears. There's no crying in baseball. Stop your sniffling. Rather, he's saying, don't weep because the son will not remain dead. His call to not weep is compassionate because he's about to do something that will turn her mourning into rejoicing, her grieving into dancing. So listen, if you're a Christ follower, don't say this to someone in a funeral. Christians notoriously say some unhelpful things sometimes at a funeral. Don't say, don't weep. We grieve with those who grieve. And while we weep, we help one another look to the living hope that is to come, the resurrection of the dead that is promised to those who are in Christ, where one day, church, our grieving and sorrow will, ret- will turn to dancing and delight. Amen? That day is coming. So we, may we live today daily aware of eternity in mind, that Jesus is able to make all things new, and he is making all things new Verse 14, then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearers stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The boy's on a plank. That's what an open coffin was, a stretcher, if you will. And touching the open coffin would have been against Jewish law, bringing defilement. But we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus choosing compassion and love, for instance, on the Sabbath, rather than obedience to ceremonial laws, because it's more important that he obey the great commandment of loving God and loving neighbor. Jesus speaks to the, to the dead. Young man, I tell you, get up. Verse 15, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. I love how Luke phrases that. The dead man sat up and began to speak. Luke wants to remind us he was dead. Dead men don't usually sit up. Dead men don't usually speak, except for those creepy movies, which I have no idea why you choose to watch. That opinion was for free. Sat up and began to speak. He is alive. Return to life. Do you see the ease? Do you see the ease at which it describes Jesus bringing back someone from the dead? Great power displayed with great ease. We see that play out in the resurrection of Jesus as well. When his followers discover that empty tomb, it, looked, it didn't look like it had been a struggle. His burial clothes were all neatly laying there. It's great power displayed with great ease because he is the son of God. Because he is. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is worthy of our complete and our collective trust. Then fear came over everyone and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. Fear seizes the crowd, rightfully so, because they are aware that a supernatural power of God is in their midst. A miracle has occurred that would not take place in the natural world. Jesus is Lord over the living. He's Lord over the dead. So for those of us, which is probably everyone across this parking lot as well as those online, For those of us who have lost loved ones, who have trusted in the Lord, be encouraged. Jesus is Lord over them. He has not forsaken them. He has not forsaken them in the coffin. He will keep his promise of the resurrection to come. He has granted to them already eternal life, free from 
the sin and brokenness of this world because he's making all things new. Jesus is the one with all authority. He has a heart for the nations. We see him ministering to Jew and to Gentile. Jesus cares. Jesus heals. He grieves. He resurrects. Again, to steal from the Bible, he's worthy. And his mission to rescue and redeem is a mission to every tribe and tongue, every nation, Jew and Gentile. We see that here. We see it throughout the Gospels. We see it in the launching of the New Testament church. All of us are born in need of rescue and salvation. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Have you placed your complete faith in him? Are you following him as a way of life? If not, my hope is that today you would repent. You'd turn and realize that apart from Christ, we are lost and separated. But in Christ, we can be joined into relationship, receive eternal life, receive an unchanging identity in Christ. So Father's Day, a a specific encouragement to us men today. This goes from young men who are still in school to men of any post-high school age, single, dating, married, hope to be dads someday, already dads, grandfathers. Listen, our households, our family trees, our workplaces, our schools, our communities, our nation, our world need, they are in desperate need of godly men of growing faith in Jesus and growing humility in Jesus. This centurion stood out from the rest. He didn't fit the stereotype of the typical Roman soldier who lacked compassion or empathy. This man loved his servant and had compassion for his pain. This man understood submission to authority. We need a movement of men who don't fit the stereotype. We need a movement of men who don't fit the stereotype. We need a men who aren't taking their cues from a self-centered, me-centered, all-about-me world that is marked by sin and is all about me and beating our own chests. We need a, 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 a movement of men who do not follow that and take their cues from that. We need a movement of men who take their cues from Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of grace and truth, the one who is our Lord our leader, our savior, our authority, and our good, loving authority who is at work in us. We need a movement of men who follow and take their cues from Jesus Christ. The world is in need of, the the Lord will use men of growing faith in Jesus. Listen, men, our faith is in the Lord. The object, the focus of our faith is not us. The centurion understood the limit to his authority. And he believed that Christ was the Lord over all authority. See, sometimes I hear people say, if only I had more faith. If only I had more faith. The problem with that thought is it puts the source of faith back onto you and me to manufacture. The way we grow in our faith is not to look more and more at us. The way we grow in our faith is to look at Jesus Christ. It's not to dig deep down into our guts. It's, da- it's to dig deep down into his word his living and active word, and see that he is the one who is worthy and able and willing. We don't look within us to find our own strength. We look upward to him who is forever strong, forever faithful. And we see his strength reminding us that our identity is in him. It's not in us. 
this world that says the power's within you or the power is within your own gut or your own abdomen. The power's in Jesus Christ, the one who beat death, and our identity is in him and him alone. One truth we are reminded of here in the centurion's story is that faith in Christ does not require sight. As far as we know, the centurion never saw Jesus. He has only heard of him. And listen, church, we have a more complete picture of who Jesus Christ is than that centurion ever had. We see the storyline of Scripture. We see Easter morning. We see the cross. We see the ascension. We need men who exercise their faith in Christ, who live it out, who don't just give lip service to it, but where their way of life matches, where the talk lines up with the walk and hypocrisy is faithfully and ruthlessly rejected and rooted out of our hearts. Man, the Lord is growing you to a growing faith and this is not optional. This is not a suggestion from the one with all authority. This is a command and he's calling us out. He's saying your family tree needs this. The future generations that you and I will never know needs this. He's also calling us to a growing humility in him, that as our faith and trust in him grows, as we see him for who he is, how worthy he is, we become more and more aware of our need for him. Saying, I don't want to live anywhere else but other, other than under his authority. He is our shield. He is our refuge, our shelter. And we want to have a growing humility in him that lives like the soldier's who lived under, under the centurion's commands. Men who will hear from the Lord, come here, do this, go there. And men who will say, yes, Lord, I'll come, I'll do this, I'll follow, because I'm not in authority. I'm not the Lord and leader of my own life. As men, we trust in his ways, his thoughts, his wisdom, because they're higher than our own. An entirely different echelon. So in a growing humility, we reject that temptation that we are all born with, that we will fight until the day of our death, thinking our ways, our thoughts, and our wisdom are better than his. That's the way of the fool. We want to follow the way of the faithful, who trust in his ways, his thoughts, his wisdom. Men of growing faith in Jesus and men of growing humility. Husbands, both current ones, future ones, your wives long for this. They may not verbalize that. Maybe they ver verbalize that. They long for you to be a man of God who is growing in faith and growing in humility. Young men, your schools now, your friend circles, your future lives need this. No matter your marital status, your station in life, your, your age, this world, this, your workplace, this church, Crosspoint Community Church, needs men who live wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, dedicated to one another, and driven to reach people. The worship team could come back up. As we sing these last couple songs, you're welcome to give your offering online. There's also baskets there, kind of in the middle of the parking lot, as well as a, a basket over at uh, those tables over there. Because we are men of growing faith and men of growing humility, we are, a, we are to be men of prayerfulness. Over the past year, about 13 months, the Lord has continually had me in the class called Dependence Upon the Lord 101. You've been in that class before? 
I think I've been in that class ever since I began to follow the Lord. But I've hit up against things in my life that reminded me of my helplessness and in doing so, lifted my eyes to the Lord in prayerfulness. And that's a good thing. Because prayerlessness reveals a self-reliance, which is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of this man-centered life rather than a God-centered life. About a month ago, I read this quote from Paul Miller who wrote a book called The Praying Life or A Praying Life. We'll finish with this. I think it's a good encouragement to any of us, although he directs it to men. He writes this, Prayer is where I do my best work. Prayer is where I do my best work as a husband, dad, worker, and friend. I'm actually managing my life through my daily prayer time. I'm shaping my heart, my work, my family. In fact, everything that is dear to me through prayer and fellowship with my Heavenly Father. I'm doing that because I don't have control over my heart and life, and I don't have control over the hearts and lives of those around me who are dearest to me. Men, may the size and strength of our prayers in the coming days reveal what we believe about the size and strength of our God. We've talked about being able to be before the throne with boldness and confidence because of Him, His resume, not ours. And so may we, may the size and strength of our prayers from this point forward reveal what we believe about the size and strength of our God. May the growing faithfulness in our prayer lives reveal a growing trust in His faithfulness. Father God, we do trust You. We pray that You'd be at work powerfully in our lives. We pray that You would grow us collectively to a to an increasing faith, an increasing humility that would be so glorifying to you. I pray that you would shape our own hearts more and more into Christ, that we would take our cues from you and you alone as we follow you. And where we are tempted to follow ourselves, where we are tempted to trust in our ways, our wisdom, our thoughts, may we joyfully and gladly Repent of that and turn from that, knowing your ways and your wisdom and thoughts are higher and better in every single way. Be glorified by a movement of men who live for your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.